Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and His Word, is Galatians 3, verses 15 to 18. Now, it's been four weeks since we were last with the Apostle Paul, trying to work our way through one of the most significant arguments in the New Testament. So let me say first how grateful I am to those who carried various aspects of, of this service, of our services the last three weeks while my family and I were away. Uh, lots of people did a lot, uh, including of course our preachers, but many others behind the scenes carrying, carrying the ball. And I know these were good works here at, uh, good weeks and works here at Christ the King. But let me also say I'm glad to be back and to be back in Galatians. And I hope you are too. This morning I opted for a short text because I want to try to ease back uh, in somewhat to Galatians so that there's only four verses to cover, technically, but that's not the hard part. The hard part's going to be the re-entry, I think back into where we are in this letter. And that's going to take some time because when we finished four weeks ago in verse 14 of chapter 3, we were in the middle of what I take to be the heart of Galatians. So if you have the Bible there, it would be good if you did that you could be looking at the text as we move along. Paul turns in chapter 3. Paul turns directly to the Galatians at the beginning of the chapter. All foolish Galatians, he says. And he has one question for them. You remember it. Perhaps the most important question of the book. Verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? You hear nothing else in this whole series of Galatians, hear that for Paul, the thing that demonstrates that you're part of the people of God, that these Galatian Christians who aren't circumcised, though some are trying to convince them to be circumcised, right? That these Gentile followers of the Jewish Messiah, what it is that Paul says is the thing that shows that they're part of the family of God is they have the Spirit. They have the Spirit. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And those two options become the key point of contrast for Paul. And we know it was by the hearing of faith. Right? I mean, come on, they're Gentiles. They didn't even have the Old Testament law. What they did have was the hearing of faith. What they did have was the Spirit. The Spirit came to them, and they were changed. Their hearts were changed. It's all about the Spirit. You have the Spirit, you're part of God's people. You don't have the Spirit, you're not. And they're Gentiles, you see. That's the big deal. You could say that these Gentiles are now true Jews. 
right? I mean, that still sounds somewhat radical when we say it that way today, doesn't it? We don't tend to talk that way now. But Paul did. And this was the first century. How Gentile followers of the Jewish Messiah were to be understood is everything for Paul. Because it was everything for the gospel he proclaimed. And Paul's just saying now to the Galatians the same thing that Peter had seen. Remember Peter? Peter who should have remembered this earlier in Galatians when Paul was talking about what Peter did back in Acts 10. Remember Peter going to Caesarea and he preaches at the house of Cornelius and the text says the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. That's the thing. They have the Spirit. But now watch this. For all of that, Paul's concern isn't even primarily with how they received the Spirit. That point, he assumes, it's by the hearing of faith. Their hearts have been changed. He'd preached the gospel in Galatia. He'd seen the response to the gospel before. Now, Paul's primary concern is how the Galatians continue from that point. Right? Look at verse 3. Are you so foolish, he says, chapter 3. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So let me, let me push here a little. Because this is where Galatians is ultimately taking us. And I don't want to lose the thread of it. And so I'm taking this huge part of this sermon today to remind us of this thread. This is where Galatians is ultimately taking us. For those of you who are Christians... Those of you who are true children of Abraham, true Jews, if I could put it that way, how do you think about how you live as a Christian? Do you think about how you live? Do you think it matters how you live? Why do you think it matters? how you live as a Christian. Paul says what he's most concerned with is how these Galatian Christians live now that they have the Spirit. When we come to chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians, which we will one day, believe it or not, in chapters 5 and 6 of Galatians, it's just basically all about how you live as a Christian. So here's the question I think we have to keep in view. Why does that matter? I mean, really, Paul will spell that out pretty clearly in Galatians 6, and we'll consider that when we get there someday, this calendar year, Lord willing. But here in chapter 3, we're getting ready. Because Paul's point is that the way you continue in the Christian life is the same way you start in the Christian life. It's faith. You live by faith. He said that in autobiographical form back in chapter 2, verse 20, didn't he? And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The question I want to just put out as we press ahead in Galatians, not to answer it right at this moment, but as we press ahead, 
Do you think it matters how you live? And if you've been with us thus far, you could already start to address this. Because listen, faith's not a one-time deal, right? Faith isn't a one-time deal. (laughs) All through the Bible we see this. You either live by faith or you don't have faith. Because faith isn't mental assent to a set of doctrines or facts or teachings or something. Not that it doesn't include teachings or your mind. But it's not just mental assent to doctrine. It's the hearing of faith. It's the obedience of faith, as Paul calls it in Romans. Or, as Paul will put it later in Galatians, saying the same thing, it's walking by the Spirit. That is either a reality in your life or it's not. Which matters very much. Because as I read it, and I think as Paul's presenting it, that's the faith the Bible, and Paul explicitly here in Galatians says, is counted as righteousness, right? And it's just like Abraham, Paul says. Verse 7 in chapter 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And verse 9. Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And then from where we ended last time, we can close the loop, right? Because what's the blessing of Abraham? Those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. What's the blessing of Abraham? What is the thing that shows that you're a child of Abraham? That you're one of the offspring of Abraham? Answer, it's the Spirit. It's verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we, Jew, Gentile, we, everybody who trusts in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I think that Galatians chapter 3 verses 1 to 14 is the heart of the book. All of it builds on Galatians 2, of course, where Paul talked about justification, about righteousness, about Jesus, about faith. There's a lot in chapter 2 that's critical, but it's it's chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, that is the statement of the main argument for the Galatians. So we're right back to where we started, right? The righteous shall live by faith. You have the Spirit by the hearing of faith. You started by faith, Galatians. You live by faith. That's what the true offspring of Abraham do. Like Abraham, you live trusting God's promises for the future in response to God's provisions in the past. Remember that sermon from five weeks ago? No, you probably don't, but there it is. You live trusting God's promises for the future in response to God's provisions in the past. It won't be perfection. It's a roller coaster. Remember, Abraham's <laughs> it's not a linear path, but it's there. 
it does become the way you live. Trusting God more and more over and over, which of course means obeying God. Of course it does. You can't trust God without obeying Him. What are you talking about? So it changes everything. It changes your whole life. That's what Paul's saying. Live by faith, Galatians. The righteous shall live by faith. But then Paul knows that in the background there's a critical question that has to be addressed, right? And the question basically is, well then, Paul, what about Israel? What about the whole history of God's people between Abraham and Jesus, Paul? Fine, go back to Abraham, but what about everything in between here? What do you say about the law that Israel, by and large, didn't keep? What was that all about? And do you remember what Paul began to say in verses 10 to 14 as I, I move towards our text here? Last time we met, verses 10 to 14, it was a hard teaching in many ways that Paul says what was going on there was a curse. Israel was under a curse, Paul says. Verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, quoting from Deuteronomy, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Israel as a whole came under that curse. They're still under it, in fact, as we'll see more clearly in Galatians 4. But we looked at Deuteronomy chapters 27 to 32 last time that I was with you. Remember, we looked at Deuteronomy in some detail and we saw that on the whole, what happened? What would be the reality for the people of Israel? Well, the reality was that God's judgment would fall on them ultimately resulting in exile, that the curse of the law would be borne by them because they wouldn't have the hearing of faith. They wouldn't live faithfully. They wouldn't abide by the book of the law. And we saw, didn't we? This is, this is it. We saw that that was because their hearts wouldn't turn to the Lord. In fact, we saw how Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 29 that Moses said to this day, the Lord has not given you, not given the people of Israel a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. That's the condition of Israel. And that's a big deal. And Paul's I'm just setting this up because Paul's going to have a lot more to say about all this as we move through the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. But now here's what he has to begin addressing straight away in verse 15, where we are today now and following. Paul, isn't that a problem? Isn't that a problem? Isn't it a problem that the descendants of Abraham ended up under a curse? I mean... Come on, doesn't that just wreck the whole program here? You just built this whole thing on Abraham, Paul, for weren't the promises of God made to Abraham, but weren't those promises for his descendants? Weren't they for Israel? 
So if the Sinai covenant's broken, if Israel as a people is under the curse of the law, Paul, how can the promises granted to Abraham stand? How can God even then extend that blessing to the Gentiles? I mean, do you feel anything of the weight of that issue? Just a little bit? Can you at least imagine what it feels like? It's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us, but it's so central to the New Testament. Because I think it's to that problem that Paul now turns in verses 15 to 18. And we're there now. So there, they're done with the, the, the re-entry. And I know that there goes the time. But Paul's point now in verses 15 to 18 is this. That the promises to Abraham, which he's banking everything on Abraham, right? The promises to Abraham stand firm, Paul says. Why? Why? I mean, look at the history of Israel. Why? How do the promises to Abraham stand firm? Paul says it's because all through the Sinai era, all through the history, from Moses through the people of Israel in the land, under a monarch, a divided kingdom, even in exile, all through it, Paul says. You read your Old Testament. There was only ever one People of God, Paul says. And one covenant reality. And nothing's changed. One people and one covenant. Verses 15 and 16 are about the one people. And verses 17 and 18 are about the one covenant. And then next week, in verses 19 to 22, we'll see that there's only one people and one covenant because there's one God. So next week, we complete the unit without all that lead up again. But that's the outline here for verses 15 to 22 of chapter 3 to be continued next week. One people, one covenant, one God. Or in other words, brothers and sisters... Nothing changes in the Bible. Nothing changes in the Bible in terms of everything that I spent the first bulk of this sermon talking about so far. The role of the Spirit, the hearing of faith, the promises that pertain when that faith is present. It's the same all the way through from Abraham, for Abraham, for Moses, and for Jesus. So, briefly, one people. In verse 15 now, Paul gives an illustration. A kind of sermon illustration, if you will. My wife says I should give more sermon illustrations than I do. You may see, maybe you say that. Maybe you say, I wish our pastor would give more sermon illustrations. Which sounds good until you actually read verse 15 and then you say, that doesn't make any sense. Right? So actually, never mind about the request for illustrations. Verse 15. <laughs> Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Which, if you're honest, just isn't an illustration that really works very well for us. Right? 
because we can think of lots of examples of man-made agreements that are annulled and are modified or added to and true. The scholarship around this verse as I've tried to read it seems pretty well divided on exactly what Paul's referring to here. But in general, we can at least say that there were legal contexts in the ancient world where this would have made more sense than it does to us. Bottom line, without the detail, we don't have to go to the details to see Paul's point. That if there are contexts, just trust him that there are, if there are contexts where covenants between people aren't annulled or added to, how much more so than with the Lord? You see, it's, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. In other words, the Lord made his covenant with Abraham. That's what Paul's been emphasizing. You go back, you read Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, the covenant's there. The relationship's established. The Lord himself ratified it in dramatic fashion in Genesis 15. And in that covenant, promises were given. Promises were given that must be kept. Promises like land and a people and blessings for the world. And we know that those promises continue on. And we know that they continue on because of Abraham's faith and God's faithfulness, right? So Genesis 26, verse 4, speaking to Isaac, we read this before, and in your offspring, Isaac, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. In other words, Abraham had the hearing of faith, the obedience of faith. But then what's the problem? Well, the problem's Israel. Because where does the Old Testament end up? I mean, that's great. There's Abraham, but what, where does the Old Testament go? Well, the people are in exile, right? Essentially still in exile. With the people as a whole being hard-hearted, still under the curse of the law. I mean, some come back to Jerusalem. You know your Old Testament. Some come back to Jerusalem. It's not the fulfillment of the promises. The end of the history of the Old Testament is Cyrus, king of Persia, acting like he's the Messiah. That's not the promises. That's not the fulfillment of what God wants to do. So the Old Testament ends still awaiting the fulfillment. The people are still awaiting a restoration, waiting for a renewed display of the power of God for them. So this is the objection Paul has to deal with. I mean, given that history, Paul, how can we see the promises of Abraham as standing firm now, and the answer comes by asking the key question that Paul goes on here to address. Well, to whom were those promises given? That takes us to verse 16. Now, Paul says, the promises, those promises that are part of the covenant that can't be undone, they were made to Abraham and to his offspring, Paul says. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay. The key is to answer the question, who are the offspring of Abraham? 
You see, when Paul picks up this reference to the offspring in Genesis, using this vocabulary that does appear in the Abrahamic narrative more than once, I think Paul's saying this. He's saying, look, you've got to keep in view the whole thing. The whole Abrahamic narrative and what follows. Because the promises are given to the offspring. And in the narrative, that clearly means there are some who will inherit the promises and some who won't. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, the word offspring is used to refer not to all the children of Abraham, but to the one who is promised, Isaac, and therefore not Ishmael. Right? The text says, For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, Abraham. In other words, some will be offspring, and some won't be. And then, it's not even all of Isaac's descendants who are the offspring, right? You know this. It's key to how Genesis unfolds, how the work of God in history is understood, that Isaac was the son through whom Abraham's offspring would be named, but then Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And the promises would not go through Esau. They would go through Jacob. And then they go through Joseph to Judah, right? And these are all stories of faith. You read them in the Old Testament, they had the hearing of faith. These are the stories of faith. And from Judah, eventually, of course, well, skipping a lot, but you come to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Christ, Jesus. In other words, I think Paul's saying that when you understand the word offspring in its Old Testament context, you see that it represents a unified and limited offspring, not all the descendants of Abraham, that there is in fact always one people of God. Think about that for a second. There is in fact always one people of God, and it's not the same as ethnic Israel. It's not all the people. Which is why Paul can say in Romans 9, verse 6, famously, listen to Romans 9, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. You see what he's concerned about? For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There it is. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and here he is quoting Genesis 21, verse 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is Romans 9. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. And that one line leads to one chief representative ultimately, doesn't it? Jesus. That's not where it stops. That's not where it stops, right? Because once you get to the Messiah, the marvel of the gospel is that the line then keeps going to the people of the new covenant. 
Paul's saying it was right from the start God's intention that the promises would move through one people, one line, the spiritual line of the woman, through Abraham and his offspring, those who live by faith, those who would come to focus on Jesus, only then from Jesus to explode out to all the people of God in the new covenant, Jew and Gentile alike, including you and me. This is the Bible. I mean, I'm sorry I have a hard time getting to the immediate practical application stuff or whatever, but I just want you to exult in what the Lord has done. Now, from Paul's perspective, of course, the promise that's made to Abraham and to his offspring has to focus in on the Christ. That has to be the turning point because what Paul came to see on the Damascus road was that it was the Christ who died, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, right? That was where we were, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Well, Paul didn't think that before he met the risen Lord. thought just the opposite. But he sure did after he met the risen Lord. So that this being the way in Christ Jesus, now the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers and sisters, that means you today in 21st century North America are part of the offspring. Part of the offspring of Abraham. Do you realize that? Wouldn't hurt to just... You know, take some time to reflect on that as something real. Paul's going to spend a lot of time in history in the next chapter and a half in this book. And he cares very much that we can root our understanding of who we are in it. Into this history. Why will that matter? We'll see. We get to chapters 5 and 6. Hang in there. The history all matters. I know it feels like a long way away from our everyday life in one sense. Paul's saying, this is ultimately who you are. You're part of the offspring of Abraham. You have the spirit, you who follow Jesus, because you have the hearing of faith. Jesus was the one. Jesus was the one to whom all the promises were moving. And it was always meant to be this way. In you shall all the nations be blessed, God said to Abraham. How do you get into that? How do you get into the blessing of Abraham? It's the gospel. It's not, if, if Galatians is making any sense to you, it's not by getting into Israel through the law. You see? That's not the way. It's by coming to Christ by faith. That's where Paul's moving in chapter 3. Look ahead to verse 26 in chapter 3. For in Christ Jesus, he says, you... Marion, Philip, Pan, Ron, Roger, Green and John, and Megan, and Karina, and you. You are all children of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Go to verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. 
There was only one people all through history. And you have to see that through the history of the people of, of the Old Testament. And if there's only one people all through history, then there can be only one covenant reality all through history. Which is then why Paul moves to verse 17. This is what I mean, he says. We're almost done. Here's the implication of what I just said. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. No. The covenant hasn't changed. What the covenant may have looked like has changed a bit. The covenant hasn't changed. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Literally, God graced it to Abraham. It's always only the grace of God that saves us. And we're right back to where Paul started his letter. Grace to you and peace. Or in other words, dear Friends, the only way you inherit the blessings of Abraham is by faith, right? And it was never anything different. Because what happened with the law? Well, by and large, we're going to be in it big time in the next several weeks. A hard-hearted people fell under its curse. That's what Paul just finished arguing in verses 10 to 14. That's where he's going to bring us back to. They didn't have faith. They didn't have the hearing of faith. And so the law brought a curse. As Paul put it previously in verse 12, which Joan read earlier, the law is not of faith. Simple as that. The law didn't bring life. We'll consider that in more detail next week. The law didn't bring about the life of faith, nor could it have done so. Because according to Galatians so far, what brings about the life of faith? Only the promises of God. Only the Spirit. Only the presence of God in our lives, just like for Abraham. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? You see why that question is so important? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, Paul asks? No. So then could you annul the law? Could, I'm sorry, could, so then could the law annul the promises? No. Not even when that law wasn't kept and resulted in the cursing of the people of Israel. That's Paul's point. And we'll be spending a lot more time in how Paul sees that history in the weeks to come. So we leave this passage then with these two things in mind. First, there's only ever been one people of God. From the spiritual line of the woman through Abraham and his offspring, according to the promise, ultimately focusing on Jesus and then extending to all who trust him, you and me. Why? Because only Jesus can free us from the curse of the law as we trust him for the forgiveness of our sins. Only through Jesus, then, can the presence of the Spirit be realized in our lives. It's got to be the cross plus the Spirit. So only through Jesus can we know the blessings of Abraham. That's the first thing, one people. And then secondly, that for that one people of God all through history, there's only ever been one covenant reality expressed in different covenants, but one reality graciously given by a promise, not by the law. 
All of which then would seem naturally to lead us to the next question Paul asked, doesn't it? Why then the law? And that's the question we turn to next week. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.